We're going to do a simple topic today. Um, well, part of a simple topic today. So I'm going to look at part of this idea, what does it mean to be a Christian? And I'm just going to look at a couple of areas um, out of the list of maybe 30 or so that you could probably put up there. But I just want to look briefly at each of these areas and think about um, their relationship to each other and also how that sort of builds into that sort of big picture of what are we as Christians. So I want to start off with just this concept of redeemed. Um, And so I'm going to go to Romans first. Now there's going to be a couple of word definitions um, because I don't know whether any of you um, had fun with English when you were a child at school. I did. You know when you look up the English dictionary and it uses the same, you look up the adjective and it tells you the meaning in the sense of with the noun. So you then have to look up the noun to find out what the noun means and then it gives you the verb. And then you look up the verb and you eventually get some clue as to what it is if you don't get frustrated and give up. All right, so I'm going to, I've done all that work for you and I've cut it down to some simple things. Why? Because some of the terminology in these passages is very Christian. And if you've not come across it in a big way, I mean, words like propitiation, I used that last week, when, all right, and redeemed, which, and we'll get into a look at some of that. So I ask you to bear with me for my Greek. I've tried to cut it down to the bare minimum. Okay, Romans 3, chapter 22, uh, sorry, Romans 3, verses 22 to 26. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be the just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. So when we look at some of the concepts that are included in this word, uh, and that word propitiation, um, I know some other translations may use different words, but think of it basically this way. And by the way, these definitions are from Noah and Louder if you're interested. Um, the means by which sins are forgiven. The mechanism by which it happened. Um, it's also used, by the way, in the Old Testament as relation to the mercy seat. But that's what the word underlying that um, propitiation translation means. And so redemption is something that was a lot more common back maybe a couple of centuries ago when you went to the pawn shop and they lent you money on something that you pawned and then you had to go and redeem it back. You had to buy it back. And quite often they put interest on it. But that's what the concept of redeem is, to be bought back. So Jesus then becomes the means by which sins are forgiven to enable us, or God, to then buy us back. So that he can be both just, and you think of that in the judicial sense of rendering to one what you do, passing sentence, passing judgment, but also justifier. And and the best definition I've heard of justifier... um, because it has that idea of pronouncing one to be just or righteous, uh, was 
from years ago and it was just as if I'd never sinned. So if you think of that as a sort of a, a simple idea of what that justification is. So God took us who should have been sinners and condemned and brought us back and paid the penalty. So he paid the cost where normally the person who's doing the, um, who's the one who's, you know, in the debt has to pay that cost. So look at another verse in in light of this and then we'll pull it together. But God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, as though I'd never sinned, we are saved from wrath through him. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So when you think about it, that original position, we'd sinned, all sinned, we'd missed the mark, we'd fallen short. And in the other passage it describes us as being enemies of God and facing the wrath of God. And what God did was then he justified us by paying that price for that sin through Jesus, which means that our sins are wiped away. And we're treated as though we'd never sinned, even though we had. And we've therefore escaped that punishment which we should have received. That was paid by somebody else. So then we get on to this concept of idea of saints and sanctified. And again, big words. And I've just got one verse for this one because it kind of sums it up. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 2. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who are in every place, call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So again, a couple of definitions. Sanctified, not the word we use in everyday language, but it has core meanings. To dedicate something to the surface of God to make it holy and to honour as holy. And then the word saints has, and notice the overlap, pertaining to being holy and pertaining to being dedicated or consecrated to the service of God. And if you're interested in plural, which for my Greek class, um, it actually means people of God. But you think about this, we're sanctified and saints. So we have been made holy and dedicated to the service of God. And I'm arguing it's both of those uh, in this. And we'll look at that as we go through. You'll see how that maps into some of that other stuff. So we are cleansed and made holy. And we've talked about that in that idea of redeeming by the death of Christ. And think about it. Why is the, the Lord's Supper so central to what we do? Because the Lord's Supper celebrates or remembers that process. Because without it, when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, basically, um, if there is no resurrection, if Jesus didn't die, then it's all a big waste of time because everything hinges on that. Because without that, we are still enemies of God. We are still facing the wrath of God because of our wrongdoing. 
And so then moving on from that, that idea of walking or living um, in the light. And you'll see the link to this. So in 1 John chapter 1, 5 to 7, this is the message we should have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if that walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now reflect back on that idea of sanctified. What's it saying? And this isn't the only passage, and I've put in there the idea of light is righteousness. God is righteous. God has no sin at all. And Jesus, who came to this earth, was sinless. And so, for us to walk in that light, then we need to be doing what? What does God do? All right? And that walking in the same way that God is. And having then fellowship with God because we're walking the way that God wants us to walk. But not only with God, but with one another. And notice again that comment at the end, that idea that the blood of God, uh, sorry, the blood of Christ cleanses our sin. So while we're walking in that light, right? So it's that again, that idea of being cleansed, sanctified um, by that blood of Christ and being dedicated to God, that walking in the way that God walks. I beseech you therefore in Romans 12, 1 to 2, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And he goes on in verses 3 and onwards and he starts fleshing out what that idea means. But just think about the terminology that's used in that verse. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Which is an interesting concept of being both living and a sacrifice. But you take the concept of sacrifice, something that you have given to, in the Old Testament, killed on an altar. Given to God, right? But now we're still alive. And that idea then of, well, part of that involves that being transformed, being changed from the way we were focused on the world to where God wants us to be, that spiritual focus. So it's not just a matter of doing the things. The thinking has to be there as well, right? That idea of, Worldly focus versus godly focus or spiritual focus. And then it's not just, well, it's, you didn't just join a club, but we're now called children of God. Joint heirs, as we see in this passage in Romans 8. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Notice again, that's pretty much what First John said. For as many as you are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So think about that. We are debtors to God. It's an interesting way of saying that, isn't it? We owe God. All right? To live according to the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. And being led by the Spirit, you think of what we've been given. We are sons of God. We are children of God. We have been adopted. We are now heirs and joint heirs with Christ. You think about how much... So we've gone from being enemies to joint heirs with Christ in God. And what did we do in all of this process? Diddly squat. Which for those who don't understand that term, nothing. In comparison to what God has done, we've done nothing. He did it all. He set the whole thing up. And all we had to do was jump in with both feet. And notice the context. You think about that picture of being heirs with, of God and joint heirs. And these are the verses that follow. And I threw this in because I thought it was interesting in putting it in that in the context. For I consider that the suffering of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So it's not just, you know, oh yeah, we're we're heirs, but that sort of eager expectation, waiting for God. And anything that happens to us here, well, that doesn't matter. Not worth comparing. One of the other terms I just want to have a look at in this as well, and you'll sort of link these as we go through, that idea of being a disciple. Um, and this is the passage that's up every Sunday morning, so I almost don't need to read it. But I'm going to. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And it, it sort of begs the question, you know, what's a disciple? Again, it's not terminology that you come across because Jesus called his, his followers disciples and told us to make disciples. Um, so what is it? And I, I'm going to, because of all the Asian movies I watch, um, I'm going to nick something from there. Think about the old Shaolin monks. The idea that you joined the monastery as a child, you lived in the monastery, you learnt the ways, you hung around with your teachers, they taught you how to live and um, whether it was martial arts or whatever it happens to be. And you became one of those monks by following those actions, those thoughts and everything else. And that's really that common idea of what a disciple is. Someone who learns at the feet of their teacher and becomes effectively like their teacher. Now, we don't have that concept very much these days, but we do have something similar. And it's a lot more narrow-focused, 
But think of apprenticeship. When you become an apprentice, you learn on the job. You learn how to do the job. You're taught the ways that you do it. This is the best way to do that. This is why we do this, etc., etc. Right? And apprenticeships tend to be very focused on a particular um, stream, like whether you're an electrician or whatever, but it has that same sort of idea. And so really, um, when you think about what Paul describes when he uses this terminology where he says that he was um, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of the Father's law and was zealous towards God as you are all today. If you think of a modern analogy, I learned physics by sitting at the feet of Isaac Newton or Einstein or, insert name or physicist here, versus I learned physics by reading a book that someone left on the desk. Right? The other guy has much more credibility because he learned from someone who was a master in that subject. Now, when we think about discipleship for us, who is our? We are disciples of Christ. And so, therefore, he is our master. He is the one that we learn from. And Jesus used another term where he used to, uh, came up, particularly when he was calling the disciples, where he used this term, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it literally means come behind or follow. So in other words, where Jesus went, you go. And then Jesus, as you can see from walking through the Gospels, he was teaching them and training them as they went. And I want to sort of summarise that whole concept with this um, that's presented in 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 2. Imitate me, and this is Paul speaking, as I also imitate Christ. And again, another idea of what it means is to be a disciple is that I'm an imitator. What Jesus does, I do. Because he's that master. And what Paul is saying is, Jesus was my master, I imitated him, now if you imitate me, you're effectively imitating Christ. Right. And part of this, you think about the reason why we're doing this. And, and just summarising it in that First Peter passage, where it says, um, but he, as he who called you is holy, again, that word that we looked at earlier, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And can you see the picture that's effectively being built? We've been saved by God, sanctified, and now we're becoming mini-Jesuses, if I can use that terminology. Right? By do, we are the people who follow and do what Jesus does, and why Jesus did it, etc. So, that one is who is taught by the disciple. And if you remember back to the pathing, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all things. So it's not just a matter of just knowing. We need to be that imitators, to do what he taught as well as to teach what he taught. And then there's a purpose to this. Other than just us becoming heirs and becoming children of God, this idea of we're saved for good works. 
In Ephesians 2, 4 to 10, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice how he keeps linking these. Um, By grace you have been saved and raised us together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show his exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. We didn't get do anything to make this happen, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should work, walk in them. And again, uh, cut out some of the context, but the idea of, you know, remember, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, you were once children of wrath in the earlier parts, now we've been made alive, raised up to sit in the heavenly places, we've been saved by grace and faith, not of ourselves, but we were created for good works in Christ Jesus. So not only are we imitators, we're God's workers. And again, similar sort of idea in the Titus passage. And I'm just going to pick it up from verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So that begs the question, are we zealous for good works? Something for you to think about. Because that's the reason we've been saved. He spells it out. That that part of that doing that good works is part of that process, right? We're not just God's own special people, but we are God's people who are zealous for good works and looking for that return of Jesus. And just thinking about this, and I just want to throw in this one concept because the terminology I think is helpful. Remember when we look back at sanctified and uh, holy or saint, and it was made pure but also dedicated to the service. In Romans he uses some terminology which kind of links in with that. Um, And I'm just going to, there's a whole big section of this but I'm only going to pick out one little bit. But in Romans 6, 17 to 19 he says, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, Oh, good, I'm not a slave anymore. Well, actually, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. And again, holiness being the outcome So before picture, you were a slave of sin. But now it's not that you're, well, I'm not a slave anymore. Now I'm a slave of righteousness. And I use the word slave. The word actually means servant or slave. But since we don't get paid, I'm going to stick to, well, we have have been paid. God, God did it all. We're not doing it because we want to get saved. We're doing it because we are saved. But that that, that sort of terminology kind of helps us think about when we're dedicated to Christ, 
You can that sort of terminology helps in your understanding. I'm focused as as a slave would have been on serving their master. I'm now serving God or serving righteousness. And I I know this is a familiar passage and we quote it quite a lot, but the mechanism behind it is important. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Think about what it's saying. I am dead. Full stop. End of discussion. I'm gone. The only thing that's driving me now is Christ living in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And it's hard not to sing it. So we were slaves of sin, but now we're slaves of righteousness. We've been crucified with Christ. What we were before is gone. And now something else has replaced it, and that is Christ living in us. And I couldn't get past without doing this one to finish off. Sharers of the good news. Think back to the passage we talked about in Matthew 28. How does one go and make disciples? Well, it kind of involves actually going out and talking to people and making disciples. They don't come to us necessarily. So that idea of it's a process. It's not all just for me. I'm saved, beauty, good, I'm done. No. We have to then pass that on so that we as we have been um, given that opportunity, others also may be. And as um, Peter wrote in his, and remember the context of this is in persecution, where he says, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, um, you are blessed. And do not be afraid for their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defence to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So even if times are tough, you're given a hard time. He says, don't think about that stuff. Think about the other stuff. You're sanctified in God and always be ready to give that answer. So, from a fairly high point of view, just want to summarise that idea of it's a, a big picture of we've been redeemed, we've been brought back. We were sinners and now we're not. Why? Because God made us holy. God made us without sin. And now we're dedicated to God. We live where God lives and we are imitators of Christ. Right? We're joint heirs with Christ. We're his disciples who are serving now God with good works, sharing his news, his gospel. And we are dedicated to that cause. We're slaves of God, slaves of righteousness.